Peace be with you. Um, today's scripture reading is James 5, 1 through 6. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosions will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good job, Courtney. Good morning, Sojourn. All right, one more time. Good morning, Sojourn. All right, thank you very much. Hey, I'm Pastor Justin Carl, and I'm the pastor of Next Steps here at Sojourn Midtown. And I am excited to share these verses with you today, but I need to talk with you about them because these are probably the harshest six verses in all of the New Testament, maybe in all of the Bible. And there's a certain way they function in our lives. And I wanna take you back to 2005, specifically August 2005, as a way of understanding how these verses should work in our lives. See, in August 2005, Hurricane Katrina made landfall here in New Orleans. Ah, there it is. So, Hurricane Katrina made landfall in 2005. It would end up being the greatest catastrophe in U.S. history. It would cause more damage than any other natural disaster. And you can see from these photos, you can see the whole city was flooded, highways underwater, neighborhood after neighborhood devastated. Over 800,000 homes were either destroyed or significantly damaged. That's more than all the homes in Louisville combined. A city wiped away. 1,800 people lost their lives. You can see their, their football stadium was turned into a relief center. And they looked for people, looked for bodies, when boats going down the streets. And I'll save you the more gruesome pictures here, but it remains vivid to me because I lived in the Deep South then. And suddenly we had refugees from Katrina moving up to Atlanta, moving up to Birmingham, moving all over the South. And you'd hear their stories of, how, of the days leading up and the days getting out. And suddenly these tales kind of haunted all of the South and really all of America of this great tragedy. But before this tragedy, before this unbelievable catastrophe that seemed unpreventable and unpredictable and a mass devastation, there was a warning and it wasn't a warning from uh, a fortune teller in a back world area of the world. And it wasn't a warning from an academic conference hall from an Ivy League school. No, instead, it was the local newspaper 
three years prior, a full three years prior, wrote this. It was a five-part series called Washing Away, the worst case scenarios if hurricane hits Louisiana. And the byline read then, and it reads today, it's only a matter of time before South Louisiana takes a direct hit from a major hurricane. Billions have been spent protecting us, but we grow more vulnerable each day. And the articles are so detailed, this wasn't fear-mongering to sell papers, this was just a reality and a legitimate warning, because a warning is something that can point to the signs and show a likely outcome. Here's a diagram they drew of the levees breaking, which would be exactly what happens, as if they drew this after the hurricane, but they drew it three years before. It was a warning. In these verses, through the book of James, across space and time, are a warning to everyone everywhere, but specifically a warning to us Sojourn Midtown today. Because that warning for Katrina was this will likely happen and the devastation will be vast. James's warning is saying the final judgment is absolutely coming and its devastation will be far worse than any hurricane. So as we look at this text with sobriety and humility, we need to be a people who hears the warning of God. To that end, let's pray for our humble hearts for this text. Let's bow our heads. Lord, Father, God, Lord, these are tough and difficult, harsh words, and we need to treat them as the warning, the grave warning they are. But Lord, I pray for the Spirit to fill me and to fill this place and to fill the people of this church and for the visitors to have their hearts touched that as harsh as these words are, they're in love to point us to a gentle Jesus. A Jesus who wants to transform our hearts that this warning is because of, a, of this, this coming judgment. Let us flee to a gentle Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. And so we have the problem with riches. Look at verse one with me. It says, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Come now. And come now just means listen up, pay attention. That's what it means in Greek. Focus in. This is the point. And it says, weep and howl for the misery's coming. And that word really means howl. It's like a dog with its leg in a trap, bleeding out and screaming, knowing its death and destruction is coming. That misery is coming upon you rich. And so what becomes infinitely important is who is James talking about? Who is you rich? And the thing is, in this context, I want to be faithful and accurate to who he's talking to. He is probably not talking to the church for the most part. He's actually talking to wealthy landowners in the Roman Empire, wealthy non-Christian uh, landowners in the empire who are very wealthy and rich, and they trusted in their riches. By definition, by not trusting in Jesus, they were trusting in anything else, but probably their riches. And he wrote this, and we, we know this, there's some clues in the text. First, he doesn't address this section to brothers and sisters like he does 
in other parts of James. Second, he doesn't call for these people, if they're Christians, to repent at all or call for faith or call for prayer. He doesn't do that. And then in verses seven and eight, right past this passage, he tells the Christians he's writing to, to be patient and take courage because the Lord is coming to get rid of this oppression of the rich. And you might find that comforting as we explain the text accurately in that context, but our situation has changed. And I want to be accurate to that context, but I want to be truthful to our context. Quick look around. We're not in the Roman Empire. 2,000 years has transpired. We now live in one of the largest and wealthiest nations in the history of the world. To think about our situation globally, if you take the median household income for a Louisville uh, single or family, it would put you globally in the top 5% of all wealth earners. If you look at it historically, most people have been eking out a living century after century throughout all of human history, living from hand to mouth. We're deceived by movies that show royal palaces or, or, or great manor houses or books like that. But most people have lived hand to mouth for all of human history. And that's not as much so today and not as much so in Louisville. And so here's the problem, the problem with riches, the issue with preaching this passage, the issue with preaching about the rich is no one thinks that they're rich, <laughs> or at least no one will admit that they're rich. And I want to prove this to you. Gallup, Gallup poll, they do national polling. I found a Gallup poll that they wanted to find out when did Americans think they were rich? When was the moment that you made it and you had riches? And so they asked people who made $30,000 as a household annually, and they said, hey, when do you feel like you would make it? How much money would you need to earn each year to make it? And they said their, averages, their average answer is about $60,000, about double. So they asked families that made about 50000 a year for their household, how much would it take to make you feel rich, to make you feel like you've made it, to make you feel like your needs are met? And they said, $100,000, about double. And then I actually found a separate poll from Money Magazine, and they asked people who had liquid assets of about $2.5 million, which means they have about $2.5 million on hand at their disposal. And they asked them, when would you feel rich? Their average answer, unsurprisingly, about $5 million. And so we see rich is a moving target. You will never think you're rich, no matter the amount of pro promotions or inheritances or assets you accumulate. Our heart is wired to always think that guy, that gal, that family, that neighborhood, that person down the street, my boss, they're rich, I am not. And so whether you feel rich after some of these stats or you don't feel rich after some of these stats, this passage has an infinite amount of importance to us living in the wealthiest era of human history in one of the wealthiest countries on earth. And the second issue with preaching on riches, one, we don't think we're rich, but two, whether we think we're rich or not, everyone longs or has longed to be rich. Whether you think you're rich or not, all of us have longed or are currently longing to be rich. Have you ever daydreamed about being rich? Have you ever thought about, oh, if my car wasn't such a beater? You know, have you ever thought about, oh, if I just had a bigger house? Oh, if I just had this or I just had that? 
That's daydreaming. That's hoping in riches. Have you ever bought a lotto ticket? That's dreaming about being rich. Have you ever watched a TV show where they look at these fantastic houses and they're all like cute and they run around and they fix them up and it's a fixer upper. Man, I can't watch that show because I get envious and angry and I start looking like, man, this house is terrible. Look at this. I don't have French doors. There's no exposed beams. Who made this, you know? Why don't even give me a loan? Dump. I got to cut it out of my life. Do your eyes wander to the magazines at Kroger? Do you wonder about the lifestyles of the rich and famous? Do you wonder how they live or what their families are like or what their vacations are like? Do you find yourself getting angry and anxious just saying, if I just had more money, I would be happy. If I just had more money, things would be good. If I just had more money, that would fix whatever X is bothering me in my life. So whether you think you're rich or not, we have to reckon with We have all hoped in riches. And that's who this passage is really speaking to. Because James isn't saying riches are evil. In fact, you'll find that nowhere in the Bible. Money is never spoken of as an evil in the Bible. And James 1.10 even mentions rich Christians among the congregation, but he's choosing not to rebuke them here. The Bible is very explicit that riches are not evil, but very explicit that riches are dangerous. They're not evil, but they sure are dangerous. Look with me at 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, Money is neutral. The problem is we are not. Our wicked hearts see money and they treat it like gasoline for all of our wicked desires. And that's why it's dangerous. Things can spin out of control quickly. It's a root of all kinds of evil. So me, you, we, we are the problem. And truthfully, I want us to all see these six verses are a warning to all of us, regardless of your current income. And here's how James says, he wants us to see these are the evil works. When we hope in our riches, just like those landowners, they were hoping in their riches and obviously not hoping in Jesus as they were non-Christians. We need to push through and ask, you may claim the name of Christ, but where does your hope lie? Where's your hope actively? Because we have to push through and see we are all tempted to hope in riches. And here's the works. Here's the symptoms of hoping in the riches. Look at verse two and three. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. That word corrosion also means poison. It's a double a double meaning here that it can rot and then it'll rot you. Unused wealth hoarded up over time and not used for the kingdom of God will one day stand as a testimony against you before the judgment seat of God. And it's interesting. James starts with looking at material goods. He says, your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten. Of course they are. All material goods are just that. They're not eternal, they're material meaning they break down, they fade, they lose value. Just look at our cars, our homes, our clothes. And for them, he picked this very vivid example because in that that world, in that Roman empire, most people have between two and five outfits to their name. So the fact that the rich have so many outfits that they need to have special places called probably closets and then hide them from insects, sound familiar to our culture? (laughs) Maybe we're a little richer than we thought, right? He's saying that's ridiculous. 
And it's a highlight of all of our material investments will rot and fade. They are not certain. But then his metaphor changes a little bit. Okay, he says, your gold and silver have corroded. The whole point of pure gold and pure silver is they never corrode. That's why financial systems were once all based on it because they never wear out and they never corrode. So what is he talking about? Well, look at the end of verse three. He says, we're living in the last days. Look at the end of verse three. It says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. And so it's foolish Hoarding is foolish because we're in the last days. In the Bible, the last days are the space between Jesus rising from the dead and Jesus coming back for the end of the world. And that's where we live. And the writers of the New Testament talk about a lot because they're saying this is the time to hope in nothing but Jesus. All other hopes, all other comforts you build are worthless in a sense because you don't need a functional savior, you have an actual savior. You don't need something else to hope and have your security in. You have a Jesus who has enough hope and security for all of us. So whether your hoarding comes out as a messiness and a clutter in the house and an accumulation of goods and a storage units after storage units, or if it comes off clean, as bank accounts filled to the brim, our investments in full flourish, hoarding is a litmus test for having your hope in riches. And before you start speed dialing Dave Ramsey to accuse me of gross injustice of your financial life, I wanna be clear, savings are good, savings are wise, savings are biblical, and if you wanna know the line with savings, savings should be limiting your luxury not your generosity. Your savings are healthy to the extent you tell yourself, I'm not living as good as I could be in order to store some wealth so that I don't have to be a burden for people one day and I can continue being generous. But when it crosses the line where you're not being generous in order to build your savings, no matter how much is in the savings account, you're in the wrong. Your generosity should not be limited by your savings. Your luxury should be limited by your savings. In verse five, maybe you're like, I don't really do the hoarding thing. I don't have enough money to hoard. Well, look at verse five. This might hit you. Verse five, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Self-indulgence is the opposite of hoarding. Hoarding is saving up your riches for the future instead of trusting God. Self-indulgence is saying, forget about the future. I want to hope in riches right now. I want the pleasure. I want the indulgence. I want it now. It's the opposite and equal of hoarding. So self-indulgence is the over-consumption of things you need or the consuming of things that no one needs. And yes, there are things that no one needs. If you've been on an airplane and you've seen the magazine in front of you in the seat back and pulled it out and it says Sky Mall, everything in there, questionable if you need it, very questionable. Do you need an igloo for three dogs to live indoors with two cat racks and a parrot pole? I don't know, probably not. Do you need a Snuggie that's like a blanket and has three head holes so your whole family can sit on the couch and not move for days? Probably not. Blankets are still functional, okay? 
And sometimes we buy things we don't need. If you're a fan of The Office, Oscar confronts Michael Scott over his spending and says, hey, these are things no one needs, multiple magic sets and pro bass fishing equipment. There are some stuff that we don't need. But for the most part, self-indulgence is more commonly choosing to pay well beyond reasonable amounts for food, clothing, cars, homes, travel, vacations, and items of luxury, or to consume them in quantities that are unhealthy. Hoarding is hoping in riches for the future. Self-indulgence is forgetting the future and hoping in riches now to make us happy. And this doesn't mean you can't make investments in quality goods. And it doesn't mean you can't invest in a quality home. God made riches for our enjoyment. Look at 1 Timothy 6.17. Sometimes people preach and talk in a way that excludes people from enjoying what God has given for their enjoyment, and that's against the word of God. Just like it says, evils, riches aren't evil, riches are dangerous. God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God has provided everything in your life, and there's a healthy level of living within our means and enjoying the things of earth as gifts from the giver. The problem becomes when we want to love and worship and find our life and pleasure and satisfaction in the gifts instead of the giver. That's when things turn ugly and turn wrong quickly. And I feel this, guys. I feel this of self-indulgence in my life. I love to eat, and I have a conviction in my life that I need to buy, cook, prepare, Simpler meals. Why? Because there's a direct line from what Justin eats and the richness of the food and the amount of food he eats between my emotional and spiritual life and my appetite. It's direct. It's embarrassing to even talk about, but it's been my whole life and I've been struggling about it for years and working at it, and some years are better than others. But I know, for me, it's self-indulgence. Instead of running to Jesus with my sadness, my anger, with my shame, my guilt, my fear, instead of running into his loving arms, I'll run to food. Whether it's one extra donut from Nord's or twice as many calories as I need in a day. And the thing is, when you say it out loud, it's pathetic. Because instead of seeking and enjoying my Savior in my weakness, I'm running after and saying, instead of you, internal God, I want a couple slices of pizza to satisfy me. And I tell you that to, say, to evaluate your own life is, in, is invitation. It's probably ugly. Self-indulgence is rarely beautiful like a magazine makes it seem. We think of hoarding and self-indulgence as personal problems, but choosing to hoard and live in luxury often has a hidden or not so hidden cost. Look at verse four with me. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Unused wealth will cry out against you one day. Unused wealth that should have been used for the kingdom will cry out against you. Defrauding others, those wages will cry out against you. People who've cried out against you for defrauding them will cry out against you on the last day. Because here's the truth. We think hoarding and self-indulgence is a, a personal enterprise, but the high living of one person usually means the low living of another. 
And the rich are being called out for this now then oppressing their workers, but that's not unique. That's, that's just part of the story of sin at work in the world for all of human history. Whether it was slavery or dangerous work environments in the industrial revolution or sweatshops now making us cheap, fashionable clothing or defrauding of migrant workers in the U.S. to provide our produce at the kind of prices that we want to pay or paying people less on the basis of their sex or skin color or just simply being a bad boss or a poor manager, treating his employees as cogs in a machine rather than people. Exploitation in the name of profits is always sin. And the thing is, the, the, the wheel of exploitation is pushed and pulled and pushed and pulled by our need for hoarding and luxury. Hoarding and luxury. We want our luxury cheap. It pulls the wheel of exploitation and we want to hoard, which keeps the wealth that we should be generous and we should be giving to our God and living under our God. We hold it back. For us, for someone to live high means another must live low. And this isn't a matter of economies and governmental authority. It happens in capitalism, happens in authoritarianism, happens in communism, happens in socialism. Every system has greed. And the solution isn't great government, it is the gospel. It is the only cure for a sick human heart. And God is distinctly concerned about this. You might be like, man, you're going in on exploitation. Like this is a long part. And I'd say, man, I'm going in on exploitation because God is concerned. He's concerned because however you treat those below you directly reveals who you think's above you. How I treat people below me, whether they're serving me or providing a good or a service or whatever it is, directly reveals whether I think Justin's in charge of the world or that I have a God too. And you'll find this echo throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New, that how we treat those who serve us directly correlates to who we actually believe is above us. Everyone loses when we put our hope in riches. And so here's a quick test, because it might be easy to say, I'm not a landowner. I don't have anyone who works for me. I have a boss. I'm not a boss. And if I was in charge, I would never put people at disadvantage for my good. I would never do that. And I, and I was talking with a sojourner outside of his place of work. It was a coffee shop about a mile from here. And we're talking on the back porch and we're talking through his life and his work. And he was like, man, I love my job. 90% of the customers are so kind and warm and it's just a great vibe. But about one out of every 10 is a soul crusher. I go, what do you mean? They're rude, they don't tip, they're harsh, they're demanding. And, and we were talking about, he's like, what do you think's wrong? Do you think they're all just going through something that I don't understand? I go, okay, maybe. And we keep talking and thinking about it. And eventually we came down to this. When you buy coffee, it's a power exchange. I give you money, this person gives me a service, and now I get to either give or withhold a tip that this other person demands on, that depends on. And in this power exchange, you see 12 ounces of coffee can bring out about the worst in humans. And if you think 12 ounces of coffee is tempting to be harsh, tempting to reveal what's in your heart, imagine what having 12 people work for you is like. Don't look haughtily up. Instead, let's self-examine down and to say, how do I treat those who are providing goods and services for me? 
Do I tip well? Am I kind? How does that work out? How does that Uber driver or Lyft driver feel after serving you? Because Christians have this unique opportunity in tipping because you pay for the good or service and then you have a moment to tip and all Christians should tip and tip well because that moment to tip is that moment to say, I affirm the dignity in you as a person that I'm not just here for a product, I'm here to actually love you as a human being. And that's a huge difference that Christians should think and believe that way because there's a moment where we get to speak truth and love into the world and we can be fools with that moment. So let's not judge those above us so harshly without judging our own hearts first. And this gets in the final piece of the passage. We talked about the dangerous cost of riches to others But what about the cost to your own soul? How do riches slaughter your soul? Look at verse five with me. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. You have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. While living in luxury and self-indulgence can hurt others, living that way definitely wrecks your soul. And how does it wreck your soul? When we fatten our hearts and souls on material things, we lose our hunger for spiritual things. We start to eat and consume material things that will never fill us, and we demand more and more and more, and our appetite for spiritual things starts to wane and wane and wane. Living with hope and riches instead of Jesus will slowly but surely convince you that this life is all there is to live for. You live on a diet of materialism. You live on a diet of riches. You live with your hope there and suddenly your hope will be there. Jesus says, wherever your riches, your heart will be also. And if we trust in riches, we'll anchor our hope on the ground and we'll miss Jesus. It makes us comfortable settlers here on earth when the scripture has called us to be sojourners. We are to be people traveling through this land and are suffering and blessing others for good, following King Jesus and awaiting his return, knowing this isn't our final home. But when we start to fatten our heart on riches, we start to set up our own little heaven and take our eyes off that heaven and make, try to make it on earth for us, with us as king. And this goes to a darker turn. Verse six is the darkest part of this passage. It says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous one and he does not resist you. The righteous one, the one who did not resist his own trial and murder, the righteous one echoing through the Old Testament, the righteous one in this passage is Jesus. Our hearts grow fat, our eyes focus on earth, not heaven, and slowly but surely we miss Jesus. The righteous one in this passage is Jesus, and he did not resist his own trial and murder for us. When we find our hope in anything but Jesus, we are choosing not to feel our need for Jesus. We are choosing not to sense our need for more. We're choosing to grow fat and ignorant in the last days. We choose to be dull, deaf, and slow. We choose to be ignorant of our spiritual selves as we use riches and wealth as an attempt to find respect, to find worth, to find dignity, to find freedom, to find acceptance, to find significance, to find security, to find happiness, 
All these things that were meant to ultimately be found in Jesus, we run around with our riches, hoping they will make us feel that way or satisfy that need. And what it will do, we will miss our Lord. Riches can blur our vision so much that when Jesus calls to us to be our Savior and Lord, we hear his call to follow him. We hear his call to follow and give up all like the rich young ruler. But instead of an invitation to eternal life, we see it as a punishment that we will need to give away our worldliness. We get so blurry from our hope and riches that we cannot see the riches and the true riches of who Christ is. And we see throughout the Bible that God is on the side of the poor, and this is what it means. God is on the side of all humans, one. God is on the side of vulnerable humans, two. Those like the poor that are consistently oppressed throughout history. But three, God is in a blessing. This is why Jesus can say in Luke 6.20, he can say, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He can say that because when you are materially poor, you typically are not as numb to your spiritual need. Those who are materially poor typically, not always, are not as numb to the spiritual poverty in their life. Where material riches, satisfying that acceptance, that significance, all those things can dull our hearts to ignore our true spiritual poverty. And that's the blessing. Being poor is hard. That's not a blessing. But having an ability to connect to your spiritual need is definitely a blessing. You can miss Jesus because material riches make you blind to your spiritual needs. And this isn't a new or controversial teaching of James. James is just summarizing what his brother Jesus said. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 6, 34. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. If you trust in your riches, you cannot trust Jesus. It's impossible. You can't have two masters. John Piper calls loving money over God soul suicide. Loving anything over God is soul suicide. I plead with you, sojourn. Value Jesus above all things. Value him. See his great worth. Look again at verse six. It says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous one and he does not resist you. When we keep our hope in this world and not in Jesus, when we put our hope in our power and not in Jesus, when we put our hope in our riches, not Jesus, we join with the people who murdered Jesus, who had no need for Jesus because their hope was in anything but God. That's what this passage means. When you hope in riches, you don't need Jesus and you will miss him. Trust in riches, and you will by definition not trust Jesus, and judgment awaits. That's the warning. That's the warning. But guess who you can trust? Guess who is trustworthy with all those riches that we value? Guess who stands not resisting you? The richest one in all of history who had everything but for your sake and for my sake became poor. The one who could have hoarded 
but instead gave it all away. Even his last breath saying, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. The one who left perfect luxury in heaven. The one who left perfect value in heaven. The one who had no issues with his own significance. He was the one who came as a baby, born under scandal, born in a manger between the donkeys, born with a genocide coming, left to Egypt, came back a refugee, worked with his hands in obscurity all of his life, and he did it and lived a perfect life for you so that the one that could have oppressed us did not. The one who could have oppressed us took our oppression. He took oppression on himself. The one who was never self-indulgent lived self-denial for us. This Jesus, the one who could have and should have slaughtered us for our sins instead saved us and he did it by having himself slaughtered for us. Our fattened hearts deserve the slaughter of the judgment to come but instead Jesus took our spot on the cross and said, Father, your will be done. Be slaughtered for my church and my people to bring salvation to the world for all who trust in Jesus instead of hope and riches. He is not saying war on the rich. He is saying I'm at war with worldliness because I want your heart. You will never love Jesus as long as you hope in riches. And here's the great irony of it all. Jesus gave you riches to live under his kingdom. In Matthew 25, there's one who had given 10 bags of gold and he lives wisely and he lives it under the king and does kingdom priorities. And when the master returns, he hugs him and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter your master's joy. When we use our riches as the blessing they are for the kingdom of God, we actually get to experience more of God and more of his joy. But so many of us make our riches into a curse instead of a blessing. I tell you the truth, church, you can trust Jesus with your riches because you can trust Jesus with your soul. To trust Jesus for your eternity, but not with your riches today is no faith at all. It's no faith at all. You can't have two masters. Jesus is jealous for your heart. He is not at war with the rich. He is at war with our worldliness to win our hearts for him. It's tempting to hope in riches. The whole world values them more than anything else. Every message, every marketing, every advertising, the economy, that's what the world values. David Foster Wallace puts it this way. They don't love you, they want your money talking about the world. They don't really love you. They want your money. Proverbs puts it like this. It says, for many are the friends of the rich. And when the world doesn't love you but want your money, hear Jesus' gentle call. I love you and I wanna save you from your money. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come to me as a little child, not as a rich pompous man or woman, but come to me as a child with nothing in your hands and you'll be embraced by Jesus. Jesus knows for the, spiritual, for the materially rich, this is difficult. He says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. 
His disciples looked back and said, well, who can be saved? And Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Your salvation is wholly banked on who Jesus is and what he's done for you. So turn to Jesus and live. Trust in riches and you will be, by definition, not trusting Jesus and judgment awaits. Trust in Jesus and you will use your riches for Jesus. Live in generosity towards God and others. And judgment will not be scary because Jesus was judged for you. He was slaughtered to save our soul and that's how he wins the war for your soul. New Orleans had a warning years before in the paper. This is our warning, church. That hurricane would come one day. This hurt, maybe. This judgment is coming. It is an absolute certainty. Turn to Jesus and live. Hope in nothing but Jesus alone. On the night Jesus was betrayed, the same night that someone who lived and worked with him and hung out with him for three years in a row, that same night when Judas left the table to go betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, that's the night of communion. When Jesus took a loaf of bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you, you who hope in anything other than me, you who hope in riches. Likewise, he took a cup of wine and blessed it and said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. He said, do this as often as you gather, remembering what I have done and remembering my return. It is our tradition to break off a piece of bread and dip it in the wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine. We'll have stations in the front for the front half of the room. We'll have stations in the back for the back half of the room. Gluten-free communion is to my left, your right. And I urge you, Christian, stay seated for a moment and consider, has your hope this week been entirely on Jesus? Take time to repent and realign your hope before taking communion. Examine your conscience. For you, if you do not trust Christ yet, I urge you to trust this merciful, gentle Savior in consideration of the judgment to come. Please do not take communion. You're not ready for this meal yet. But ask the person you came with, grab a, a pastor, staff, grab anyone to learn how you can take communion even next week, full of faith and forgiveness in Christ. Let me pray for us.